Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershawn. I teach English at McEwen University, which is in the great white north of Canada. And uh, this week's podcast, as well as the last few episodes, have been from lectures from a course that I'm teaching on an introduction to film narrative. This week's selection deviates from the podcast's mission statement that it's about science fiction, fantasy, and horror, but it stays on track with the idea of narratives that we read and watch, at the very least, because we're looking at uh, Black Klansman, which is a film based on a book based on real events. And so today's lecture is called Elements of Narrative. We're, we're working with a textbook called Looking at Movies, an Introduction to Film, and we're looking at chapter four of that textbook, Elements of Narrative. So here's the lecture. All right, chapter four of Looking at Movies, an Introduction to Film, Elements of Narrative. And this week's case study is Spike Lee's amazing film, Black Klansman. I say amazing film because I, this one really wasn't on my radar. And when I was working on the course in the summer, uh, spring and summer of 2020, uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement was happening, I decided, well, got to get that film in the mix. I actually had just decided that I wanted to include a Spike Lee film, and because I hadn't seen Black Klansman, I thought, well, let's let's take a risk and see what it what it's all about. So, ordered the uh, the film, and when it came and I watched it, I'd, I'd only seen the trailer, and I was very very impressed by what I saw there. Uh, and then when I watched the film, I thought, oh, I have to have this in the course for a number of reasons, which will become apparent as I continue through the lecture. Once again, this is a film that, like all the movies that we're looking at this term, uh, has many nominations for, for from the Academy Awards. Now, I know that using just the Academy Awards is a bit skewed. There are some problems with that as a metric, but this film... and all the other films that we're looking at have been critically praised by many other uh, organizations that grant awards. But this one was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Supporting Actor for Adam Driver, Adapted Screenplay, Original Score, and Film Editing. And we're going to be talking a little bit about how film editing adds to the, the way in which this film delivers its content. Um, we're continuing to ask the question, what is narrative? Because this is a course on film narrative. Uh, and we're looking primarily at narrative movies. Narrative movies, which are often fiction films as opposed to other movie modes such as documentary and experimental. But we get to Black Klansman and it's based on a true story. So how does that work with the idea of narrative films? Uh, is You know, this one's not a fiction, right? It's based on Ron Stallworth's memoir, Black Klansman. And so we come into a movie like this with an expectation, perhaps, uh, that it's like a documentary. That the, that, and that's the complaint I hear from, especially history buffs, when they see, you know, films based on certain moments from uh, World War II, uh, my dad's a, a, a bit of a, a war movie buff, and he will get frustrated when a movie deviates from the way it really happened. And increasingly, I'm convinced that most 
narrative film isn't concerned with telling you how it really happened. One of the great war films is a movie called Tora, Tora, Tora. And it tells the, about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, both from the American and Japanese perspectives. It is a tedious film. It, it, it's really, really well made, but it's a tedious film because it comes so close to documentary. And uh, there's another movie that I can think of that it's not tedious per se, but it doesn't follow the sort of narrative structure that we would expect from narrative film. And it's a movie called The Right Stuff, and it's about uh, the space program. And in the United States and it doesn't flow in the same way that a narrative film will with that sort of beginning middle and end those three act structures uh, or that three act structure and Black Klansman does the same thing and I, I think it announces its fictionality to some degree in in a number of methods it, it makes sure that we know we're not watching a documentary uh, but people nevertheless will still have these expectations. And so you'll end up with evaluations of a movie like Black Klansman with how close did it, it adhere to history? And the question that I would ask in response to that is, did it, did it intend to? Was it ever the intention of the filmmaker to cleave so closely to history? Now, narrative film uh, is this idea, like when we talk about a narrative film in regards to the way that your, your textbook defines them, we've got this opposition to documentary and experimental modes. But as we saw last week with The Shape of Water, a film can dip into the toolbox of experimental film. And I think that Black Klansman does at a few points, but it is it is primarily narrative. But I wanted to highlight just a few of these because they're, uh, they're devices that that are Spike Lee likes to play with the narrative uh, of his films. He, d he does things with them to announce that it's a cinematic experience. And the moment in the gathering where uh, Kwame Ture is reaching the minds and hearts of these black Americans about them being beautiful, about them being important, about the time for, you know, blacks to rise up and be proud of who they are, there's this great move where the background is lost. We get these shots of individual faces, grouped faces, and it's against a black background as though the world has dropped away. And it obviously isn't at that point trying to recreate reality. I think this is a, you know, in not in a sort of science fiction-y or fantasy sense, is a moment of anti-realism where we are taken out of the realistic mode of the film, having these people sitting in this assembly hall to these moments where they're just against a black backdrop. And I think what it signals to us is that they're all having these moments of introspection. It, it alerts us as the audience to the players in the film having this moment of in, in, introspection. And I, I felt for myself personally as a, as a viewer that I was supposed to be having that moment of ex introspection as well. Um, and we get another moment like this, wh near, when I say like this, I mean that has a sort of experimental feel to it, or we might just say anti-realist feel near the end of the film when Ron Stallworth and Patrice are having, you know, a date night and then they 
hear a disturbance and they both draw guns and then they go out into the hall and Spike Lee's done this in a couple of his films. Um, so this is another one of his signature moves, but they seem to just float down the hallway. They just float towards the camera and uh, they're sitting on a rig. They're on a, they're on a rail rig uh, moving down the hallway and moments like that jar the realism of the film but I think Spike Lee isn't so much concerned with generating a moment where they walk down the hall in a realistic fashion he wants to give the sense of like emotional vertigo that these characters are having as they you know they sense this disturbance and then they go to see what it is it's definitely an anti-realist moment that is deadly serious, that wants us to sit up and pay attention in case we've gotten lazy at this moment in the film, because this is during the resolution moments of the film, like we're, we're getting ready to leave the theater or we're getting ready to shut off the, the TV. And it's as though Spike Lee goes, hey, sit up and pay attention because what comes next is going to be super important. And we'll come back to that later, later today. Um, so Black Klansman follows, the, for, its, for all those experimental little nods, this film follows a pretty traditional narrative structure. And I have to wonder if that wasn't, um, you know, for, from Spike Lee's perspective, let's make sure that we're doing a few things in very conventional ways because I want to make sure that people don't miss what's going on here. I don't want them to miss the, the other stuff that we're going to be throwing at them. So once again, we have this traditional narrative uh, schematic, and we're going to divide it into three acts today. It's, it's often divided into three acts. Many films are divided into three acts. Um, your textbook says narrative structure is typically characterized by a three-act format. And we're going to walk through this taking a look at Black Klansmen. So the... Uh, um, the film starts with a sort of prelude. It's not really part of the first act where we see Alec Baldwin playing Dr. Kennebrew Beauregard in a performance that gripped me. I was so into this film from those first five minutes. Um, and I've got this quote here from Anne Hornaday from her book, Talking Pictures, How to Watch Movies, which I think is one of the best books about reading film ever written. Now, I haven't read all the books, but I've read quite a few and I really like Anne Hornaday's talking pictures. So if you're looking for, uh, it has no pictures, which is one of the reasons that I did not assign it as a textbook for this course. But if you're looking for a very accessible and well-written and fairly opinionated uh, book, and I like those because then you, you get to argue with the author a bit. Anne Hornaday, for example, does not like Fellowship of the Ring. And, you know, that always makes me want to put up my dukes. But I, I like reading uh, th those sorts of those sorts of writers speaking about film. But she says, within the first ten minutes, within the first ten minutes, a well-written movie will teach the audience how to view it. And while the first moments of Black Klansmen don't teach us how to read the film in its diegetic world. This opening teaches us how we're going to need to consider a number of moments in this film. Because Black Klansman isn't just a movie about a black cop infiltrating the KKK in the 1970s. It's also a movie about the power of film. It's a movie about the power of movies. 
And within the first 10 minutes, we are taught how to watch this movie as we get Alec Baldwin as Dr. Kennebrew standing in this room. And his performance is, is I, I don't even know how to characterize it because it, it's, it's alarming in some ways because he comes across as this well-put-together guy in a suit. And then he has all these moments where he has these um, sudden outbursts, these ticks, these angry barkings and growlings and... Uh, it's it, it has this incoherence to it that I that I think is is saying that this is this is this is what this sort of person feels inside this this anger this rage um, and it's irrational and I love I love that but we see him with film overlaid he's in front of an, a series of of film images the first image we get in this film is from the movie gone with the wind a film classic and then we we cut to Canterbury with these images of um the moment where blacks were no longer segregated and they were going to be included in white schools and we get Canterbury making commentary on this incredibly racist commentary and we get images from dw griffith's birth of a nation and that comes back to this idea, like when I said we were going to talk about film editing, what we what we have with D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation is one of the great films of film history in that it, it's... Griffith introduced a number of innovations to the way that films were made. And so, as your textbook says, um, this is a... Uh, technically brilliant film. Your textbook says that while its racist content is repugnant, its form is technically brilliant. And D.W. Griffith is is more than just a footnote in the history of film, sadly. And we're going to talk more about that in a little while, but we, we want to pay attention to this opening where film is featured so prominently. It's right there in the foreground. It's not just that you're watching a movie, but you're watching a movie in which a movie is being shown. And we want to pay attention to that. And then we actually get into the narrative of the film. And your textbook says that most narrative structures can be broken down to beginning, act one, which sets up the story and establishes the normal world. What's the normal world? Uh, what's the, the diegesis of this film? We're going to use that term a, quite a bit today, and I'm going to explain what it is later. But for now, just understand when I say diegesis, I mean the reality of the film. It's not the real reality that Ron Stallworth encountered that can't be replicated by film, even if there's an attempt at documentary accuracy. It will always fall short of that. This film, though, I don't think is even trying. I think it wants to use... I think Spike Lee has appropriated... I think he's appropriated Ron Stallworth's story, and he's using it to say something that he would like to say. He's using the story as a, as a device, as a, as a delivery device. But we get the setup here that feels very much like a 70s cop movie. And it's not just that this film has characters talking about Shaft later on, but that the soundtrack, some of the camera angles, the coloration of the film feels vintage, feels retro, feels 70s. It's not just that it takes place in the 70s, but this looks like a film that was made in the 70s at several points. What we get in the first act is this, you know, and I'll summarize a little bit. I know that I didn't do that in earlier instances of this, but that's because these are made for my students, and I assume that they've already seen the film. 
but I know that this is going out as a podcast as well. And so I want to make sure that everyone is on the same page. And so what we have as a opening moment is that Ron Stallworth is the first black cop on a police force. And, you know, it's obviously primarily white if he's the first, uh, the first black cop. And he's initially viewed with um, derision. And he endures that through the entire film. But near the beginning of the movie, he gets an opportunity to go and infiltrate this gathering to hear a outspoken black activist, Kwame Ture. And in doing so, he enters the world of uh, the sort of investigators. The, he's, he becomes a detective as a result. And on a whim, decides to call the KKK and see if he can join. And, and ends up doing so. And once he's done that, then he has to he has to get one of his, you know one of his fellow police officers to pretend to be him. And that character, uh, Flip Zimmerman, is played by Adam Driver. And uh, there's a number of fictionalized elements to Flip Zimmerman's character. And so again, we're not really seeing you know a perfect replication of Ron Stallworth's experience. But that's that's the setup. Right, that they, we've got this first black cop on a on a white force, and he's going to go undercover to infiltrate the Klan. But he can't do it directly because you know obviously they're going to have some troubles with him, right? And so he has to get his white compatriot to uh, imitate that. And then we move to the second act, and in the second act we are given um, the development of whatever has been introduced at the beginning of the film. And this is where uh, Adam Driver as Flip and uh, John David Washington as Ron Stallworth continue their investigation. And more and more of the police force are drawn into this. Sergeant Trapp, their their boss, I guess you'd say their immediate, their immediate uh, superior, uh, who fills the requirement that many of the 1970s cop movies had of the soft-spoken police chief who shouts at his uh, reckless rogue police officers it was you know the sort of thing that you saw we would have seen if you've ever seen a dirty Harry movie it was an element in shaft we'd have somebody shouting like you tore up the entire street or you shot up an entire store or something like that and so the investigation proceeds and uh, this is the longest section that, that develops the story. This is the, 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 mi- the middle section is always the longest uh, part of the three-act structure. And then we get the resolution of the story, which in the case of Black Klansmen is a bombing that ends up killing some of the Klan members. Uh, it's, it's intended to take out... Uh, Ron Stallworth's uh, girlfriend, Patrice, but in a series of of misadventures um the woman who's supposed to plant the bomb is unable to do so she puts it in a car on the street and when the clan members who come to activate the bomb do it they're right beside that car and there too we we see the fictionality of this film that that these are elements that are being orchestrated in very very careful and i would argue visually poetic ways that the these men of violence are undone by their violence so that's the narrative structure of this film, and it follows it, as I say, very closely, although there are some flourishes along the way that deviate from that simple three-act structure, especially at the end of the film. But I'm going to save that until the end of our time together. In answering the question, what is narrative, we want to, we, we want to take some time to talk about who the narrator is, who or what tells the story. And we might assume it's the director or it's the screenwriter 
Well, yeah, the screenwriter writes the script and the director realizes that script as film. But who is the narrator within the diegesis of the film? Within the story world, is there a narrator? Like once the movie starts, do we hear a voiceover? Or does the camera as narrator tell us who you know who we who we're following around now in every movie your textbook says the camera is the primary narrator and so we want to be paying attention not to necessarily auditory elements but visual ones in fact and i don't think this is always the case but it's often the case if there is a lot of voiceover that's a weak film if they need a bunch of voiceovers to explain what's going on they didn't do their job in the first place they the camera is what is supposed to primarily narrate in film and i've seen movies where i thought this film didn't need that explanation the camera is explaining it but i assume i can't know for sure that the studio or the director or whomever made the decision to put in the voiceover said you know what people just aren't going to get this and I, i think that's too bad because whenever we lower our expectations then that's as high as any of us have to reach and if we're consistently being given films that deliver everything in very explicit ways we never have to reach as the viewer but if we watch complex films if we watch challenging films then we do have to reach we have to sit and go hey what's going on here and so just asking the question who is narrating this film forces us to reach because the immediate response from some people say well there was no narration because there was no voiceover no 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 who does the camera tell you is the narrator and you can tell in in it's challenging with uh with black clansman because there are several points at which the narrative cuts away from ron stallworth because we might immediately say well it's obviously ron stallworth because it's his story it's based upon his story therefore ron stallworth is the narrator well if ron stallworth is the narrator then how can we have scenes like the one that we do when flip uh is recognized by a criminal that he put away in jail Ron's not focalizing that moment. We are not seeing his point of view. So when the camera moves to a point of view that's outside the protagonist's view, we we have to recognize at that point that there's a really good chance that it's not the protagonist who is the narrator. And this is this has been true in a number of the movies that we've watched this semester. Um somebody might say, you know, that like Little Women, it's Joe who's the narrator. but is every scene in the movie focalized by Joe was she there to see every one of those movie those, those moments she doesn't see she was not there to see Amy's experiences in Paris likewise we might say well then that scene was being narrated by Flip but Flip's not the perspective in that scene it's the criminal and and when the criminal calls over one of the like obviously they're all KKK but when he calls over Felix the primary batshit crazy villain in this film we rec- we have to recognize it cannot be flips point of view either at that point so the camera is telling us whose perspective we have especially in the next shots where felix starts looking back and forth between flip and ron stallworth who is there as protection for david duke the leader of the clan and the camera goes to Ron Stallworth and then shoop, shoop, flips over to Flip ha, sorry flips over to Flip from Flip back to Ron back to Flip 
back to Ron. And we as the audience, before we need to be told, recognize that Felix is about to put two and two together. Why? Because the camera has told us so. And this is, uh, this is where editing comes into play with the camera's perspective. Because we see Felix's face looking in the direction of Flip and Ron. And then we see what Felix sees. We see his point of view, which is more often than not how film delivers that kind of point of view. So what kind of narrator types can we choose from? Well, you can have first person, which is often a voiceover, but there's also instances where first person narrators will address the audience directly. Now, just because a character or a player in the film addresses the camera directly doesn't mean that that's necessarily first person, as we'll see in just a moment. Um, but The Shape of Water has a first person narrator. I don't think that that means that all of The Shape of Water is first person because we have so many different viewpoints. Certainly, we get Giles's voice at various points in the film, but I don't think he can be the narrator because he's not privy to all of the, the things that go on. How could he possibly know? what was happening with the villain's family. How could he know about what happens in the bedroom between the, the villain and, and his wife, right? So is it first person? At certain points, yes. But I don't think we really have a first person narrator there. I just wanted to give that as an example so that you know we'd have a, a sense of that. But you also have moments where someone will speak directly to the camera. And we got moments with that in Little Women, but that didn't make it first person. And I've got an example here from a TV series uh, the adaptation of Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, where you have someone playing Lemony Snicket and he speaks directly to the camera. Is he the narrator? Yes. But is he first? Is it a first-person narrative? No, because it's not what happens to him. He is relating what has happened to these three unfortunate children. So he's third person. He's a voice imposed from outside the narrative. And we don't necessarily need to have an actual voice in any of these cases. Third person can be done without someone actually speaking. We, we might just have like a frame narrative. And then it, and then it goes in and, and, and we find that the story is being told by someone else. And then we have omniscient. Uh, the omniscient view has unrestricted access to all aspects of the narrative, characters, and information no character knows. So we, we, we can be shown things that none of the characters in the film know, and that's that omniscient perspective. And I think that Little Women, despite being Joe's book made into a film, uh, you know, and, or Louisa May Alcott's book, which is an account of her life being made into a film, it is still ultimately rendered in an omniscient way that we have all of the perspectives. We don't just have Joe's perspective. We have Amy's, we have Meg's, we have Beth's. The Shape of Water moves with all of the characters from Strickland to Zelda to Giles to Eliza and ultimately at the end of the film to, you know, I, I, there are several points actually earlier in the movie where the creature is, is the point of view. So, you know, it, it moves around. It's omniscient. And Black Klansman is as well. Even though this is Ron Stallworth's story, the way in which that story has been appropriated by Spike Lee and turned into the narrative of this film moves it into an omniscient space where we are not only there for the investigation from the point of view of the police officers, 
but we find out about things that the clan is up to uh, as well before they happen. And then finally, we can talk about the restricted point of view. And we haven't done any restricted point of view yet. I mean, there have been moments in these films where there's a, there is restricted point of view. So you can say like certain sections of Little Women is a restricted point of view, but not as, not as obviously as the movie Gravity, which we are going to look at as the last film in our case studies in this course. We want to differentiate between characters. I hope that's already been abundantly clear to you. We want to differentiate between characters and um, narrators. And these are just examples. Uh, this textbook is an introduction to the study of film. And it is, it is not the end-all be-all, but it's a great introduction. It covers a lot of ground. So when we have, you know, as with last week, we had the six American genres and we discussed that obviously those are not all of the genres. And this week, you know, we're looking at characters and we've got these four types, the protagonist, Ron Stallworth, the antagonist, definitely Felix, definitely Felix, the anti-hero. Do we have an anti-hero in this particular film? Um, we have imperfect characters to be sure. Often people want characters to be perfect, although increasingly I think we want imperfect ones. This was something that was talked about, uh, I believe, by um, Tom Hiddleston when he was talking about uh, playing Loki, that Thor is increasingly complicated as the, the Marvel series moves on and becomes less and less clearly heroic in a perfect sort of way, and Loki more and more heroic and perhaps less villainous as the as the series of films goes on. Um, and we want that complication. We are interested in that complication at this point in history. That has not always been the case. And so in years past, we've had uh, movies where it's very clearly black and white, good and evil. And modern audiences will watch that and they'll say, well, that wasn't very complex. No, but it was very indicative of where people were at at the time. The screenwriter creates the movie's story, writes a screenplay in its various stages, either from scratch or by adapting another source. And in this particular case, we are definitely looking at an instance where it's the adaptation of a source, right? Um, and the screenwriter puts all of this content together, building the narrative structure, devising characters, action, dialogue, settings. And then the filmmaker has to take that and somehow realize it. Now there is, and, and I've got a, an example of this, so if you're listening to this, you're not going to get to see it, uh, but you can always go over to the YouTube channel for Doc Pershawn and check it out. But uh, there, is, there is a precisely prescribed format for screenplays so that each page equals one minute of screen time. Now this isn't always the case because as we noted uh, when we were looking at Raiders of the Lost Ark, there is a section of script of screenplay that was the chase scene and they improvised the idea of Indy going under the truck and that sequence alone is longer than a minute and that was that wasn't even in the original script so there are instances where not that won't always be true but most of the time one page equals one minute of screen time that's the intention and that uh we, we can see here we've got uh exterior colorado springs area day and by the way the the font here is courier because of the old school typewriter uh that you would have typed up your screenplays on in the days before word processors um 
I don't know if this is always true, but nearly every screenplay I've laid eyes on, I, I don't, I haven't seen any real ones. I just see facsimiles are still using courier type. And I think that's because of this pre precisely prescribed format that goes back to the days before word processors. Exterior Colorado Springs area day, drone shot, superimposed early 70s. I love that, that there's a drone shot, and it's, but it's supposed, to, it's supposed to be the early 70s. We wouldn't have drones back then. You'd have maybe a crane shot, um, but cranes are ridiculously cumbersome and expensive. So drones are a great technological innovation in film. An amazing contrast, the beautiful landscape of Colorado Springs. The city sits nestled within the rugged mountain terrain. Uh, and right there, the screenplay is telling us that there needs to be this contrast there. And we might go back and look at the film and go, okay, well, was that contrast delivered visually? The majestic Pikes Peak, the jagged beauty of the Garden of the Gods, the plush Broadmoor Resort, the Will Rogers Shrine of the Sun. Exterior, E-X-T, period, exterior Colorado Springs Street, day, Ron Stallworth, Black, 21, handsome, intelligent, sporting a good-sized afro, rebellious but straight-laced by most 1970s standards. Ron stares at an ad attached to a bulletin board. Close, that's, that's close-up shot, right? The ad reads, join the Colorado Springs police force, minorities encouraged to apply. Ron rips the ad from the board. But if we've watched the movie, we might note that there are some differences between what happened in the film and what happens in the screenplay. And one of them is that we're missing uh, a non-diegetic element. There's no, um, there's no, nothing in the screenplay that says that there's supposed to be this moment of a non-diegetic element, which I will reveal in just a moment. But let's talk about diegetic and non-diegetic because I keep using these terms as though everybody knows them. And that is one of the cardinal sins as far as I'm concerned of speaking or writing is assuming that everybody knows what you mean when you say those things. I remember attending a talk on film at a, an academic conference that was held in the hotel where the movie, the sword and the sorcerer was made. And this guy kept going on and on about diegetic and non-diegetic and diegetic and non-diegetic. And there I was a young scholar and I didn't know what these terms meant much to my shame, but being me, I just leaned over to the person next to me and said, I don't know what diegetic and non-diegetic means. And it struck me as a moment to remember that I always need to be as comprehensive as I can be in my speaking and my writing. And there's my little aside on being comprehensive when you're doing this sort of thing. Like, obviously, in Canada, you can trust that almost all of your audience will know what the NHL is, and you don't need to spell it out for them. You don't have to say National Hockey League. But if you were giving that speech somewhere else in the world where maybe they didn't know about the NHL, then you would want to explain that. Just like I'm about to explain diegetic and non-diegetic elements. Diegetic elements are what we see and hear on the screen that come from inside the world of the story. So we think about music, particularly. I was thinking about music when I chose the images for this slide. The diegetic one shows everyone dancing in the club early in the film when Ron takes Patrice out uh, to go dancing. And the music that's playing in that scene is diegetic. It's diegetic music. Why? We know it is because it's music in the club that the people are dancing to. And we see them dancing to it. So we know they can hear that music. Later on in the film, when Ron goes up to the, the target that the KKK have been shooting at and puts his hand on it in a moment of recognition, there's music playing there and the score swells. It does something emotionally at that point that 
coheres with what Ron is doing, but that's non-diegetic sound at that point. Ron can't hear the soundtrack. We know that, right? I've often said it would be really cool if life had a soundtrack, because then you would know when you met your one true love, or you'd know if somebody was going to mug you, because the, the music would tell you, and you could run like a little early. Um, non-diegetic elements, what we see and hear on the screen that come from outside the world of the story. And it's not just music that can be non-diegetic. You can have non-diegetic elements that are visual as well. And Spike Lee loves to use non-diegetic elements in his films. And in this movie, we get a conversation between Ron and Patrice about Shaft and Superfly and Cleopatra Jones, these, these, some people would say black exploitation films, but these movies that featured black characters in in the lead roles, um, and where they were the hero, it was a huge shift in the way that 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 blacks were portrayed in major release films. And they're having this conversation about that, and them talking about Shaft and Superfly. That's diegetic. But the cutaways to the movie posters of Shaft, of Superfly, of Cleopatra Jones, which clarifies, you know, what they're talking about. Those are, those are non, non, non-diegetic elements. It's not like suddenly out of the sky, a giant poster falls down. We know this, but I want us to be aware of these things. Right at the beginning of the movie, the screenplay says that Ron sees a sign that says, join the Colorado Springs Police Force. Minorities encouraged to apply. It's a poster that he's able to rip off the wall. But what got delivered in the film, still diegetic, is this big banner that he looks up at, up up in the sky. And uh, around the same time of the film, it deli- the movie delivers a non-diegetic element that is analogous to the sign that says "Join the Colorado Springs Police Force." It's a non-diegetic banner, if you will, that says disjoint is based upon some for real, for real shit. That's not in the original script. And we know it's non-diegetic, at least in this film. We know that Ron couldn't jump up in the air and grab those. We know that he doesn't look in the sky and see them. It's not like in in the movie Zombieland, where they'll have the non-diegetic element of text. And you think it's non-diegetic, and then like a zombie crashes into it. As though it's really, really there, which which is kind of a cool breaking a fourth wall moment, a, a neat meta moment. Um, and sometimes diegetic and non-diegetic elements blend and blur to tie the film together. In an earlier lecture, I was talking about overlapping sound, which is also called sound bridge. Uh, but overlapping sound is what your textbook refers to it as. So let's let's hang with that. Even though I love the I love the term sound bridge, it just sounds cool. Um, but there there's these these the conversation between Flip and Ivanhoe, one of the KKK, this bumbling idiot of a Klansman, um, talking in the truck. That's diegetic. David Duke talking on the radio is also diegetic when the camera is on Flip and Ivanhoe, but then the camera will cut away to other people and we can't be sure, or other vantage points. And we can't even be sure that those people would be listening to the radio. And so the movie flips back and forth at that point between diegetic and non-diegetic elements, bridging, using sound, 
bridging through the use of overlapping sound, tying the scene together, not only sonically, but also conceptually, because every time David Duke is speaking on the radio, Spike Lee is juxtaposing image with that voice, with what the voice is saying. And this happens, too, at, at, in a much later point of the film, where we hear David Duke talking right before the, the car bomb goes off, right before the bomb explodes. So there are points at which uh, the sound can be both diegetic and non-diegetic, and we have to pay attention to the way in which that's used to analyze how the film has been put together and what the filmmaker has done to deliver their content. Let's talk about story and plot for a little while. I know I'm jumping around with a bunch of different elements today, um, but, you know, that's that's narrative elements for you, right? Um, <clears throat> and we're going to talk about story and plot. In other instances, I might refer to plot as narrative, but your textbook talks about it as plot, so I'm going to use that term. Um, we have story and plot. What is story? Story is all of the explicit and implicit narrative events in the movie and the diegesis or total world in which the movie occurs. And this is important because if we know the story of Ron Stallworth, the story of Ron Stallworth of Black Klansman, we might know of narrative events that happened in that diegesis, the world in which that story occurred that do not appear in the movie. This is true when we see books adapted as well. We may know about the story world in a way that the film does not deliver. Harry Potter is a great example of this. So many, so many fans upset about what didn't get put into the movies. But that's the story. The story crafted by Rowling, rendered as a narrative in her book, and then rendered again as film. The plot are the, is the specific actions and events and the order of events which convey the narrative to the viewer, or we could say to the reader in the case of print text, print text um, including non-diegetic elements. And that, that what I have here in terms of images, I have the real Stal Ron Stallworth and then I have John David Washington as Ron Stallworth. And I guess contrasting those. Because one is, one is the story, in a sense, and the other is the plot. And these overlap when it comes to film. We have the story and all of its implied events. We have the plot, which can be elements of the story, but also non-diegetic material. And where the story and the plot overlap, we get explicitly presented events. The way I'd put this is, what's in the frame of the film? But I think that this holds true not just for film, but for all fictional narratives. And I really do think, at the end of the day, Black Klansman, as film, is a fictionalized narrative. It's not necessarily a fictional narrative in that, yes, it's based on a true story, but there's lots of places where this film deviates from the truth. And when we analyze what happens inside the frame of a film using elements from outside the film, I think the conversation gets muddy. It gets murky. It gets problematic. And, you know, my students will write on a paper about a book, a story, a movie. There's often these phrases where they'll say, in real life, but see, the movie's not real life, even if it's trying to replicate it. So, you know, someone might say, in real life, 
everyone knows what it feels like to be hurt. That may be true, but now you're talking about something outside the film. And formal analysis requires that we analyze the explicitly presented events, the material within the diegesis of the film, what's on the page in a book. Because none of these things are real. These characters aren't real. The way in which they are being mediated to us is not real. It can provoke something real in us. We can be inspired. We can have an emotional reaction. Those are real things. But fiction doesn't prove fact. Furthermore, facts don't disprove fiction. Just because the true story of Ron Stallworth doesn't completely cohere with the fictional story of Ron Stallworth doesn't make Black Klansmen something that we just dismiss outright. We say, well, that's complete falsehood. Because I don't really think, as I said before, that this movie's agenda is to perfectly replicate what happened. And we can see what a film can do with fictionality in the way that it orchestrates its images. And there's this great sequence in this movie where Harry Belafonte plays this guest speaker to the student body at the local college university that Patrice has this, this um, Black Pride group at. And, uh, and he's there telling the students about the lynching of Jesse Washington. This is cross-cut with footage of the Klan accepting... Flip as Ron Stallworth as one of their members, and then celebrating that the, com- the 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 induction of these new adherents to the clan by watching D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, and we move back and forth from Harry Belafonte telling about the lynching of Jesse Washington. It's an awful and horrible thing to this movie, and at one point uh, Belafonte even flat out says there was this movie that was made and it was even shown in the White House. And these are all true things. But the way in which Spike Lee is, is moving this back and forth, were these events necessarily happening together at the same time in real life? Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. That's not really the point. The point is that we have a black man telling these young black people about a real world lynching while the Klan is watching this movie that was based on truth that depicts the Klan lynching black people, white actors in blackface, but black people. And when I saw that, I knew this had to be in the course. Why? Because this shows not only the power of cross-cutting, cross-cutting, I mean, these parallel images back and forth, but that Spike Lee almost seems to be giving, like, it's, he's acknowledging Griffith's contribution to film by cross-cutting the very, very thing that, that Griffith is often celebrated for introducing. He's using that man's technique to deliver this message of how powerful film can be. Like, we might watch the sequence with the KKK responding to this very, very old movie and think, like, even in the 1970s, would anyone have actually responded in that way? I don't know. But we know historically that Americans did when Griffith's film was originally released. That the president showed it at the White House and said that it had this, that it was just this magnificent form of art. And those who write about it have acknowledged it certainly was. Because the Klan saw an uptick in their, in their acceptability. 
that people had seen something on screen in a way normalized it. That film has power to shape culture. It is not just a cultural artifact. It also has the power to shape culture. And this sequence shows that. But it's Spike Lee appropriating... I mean, not like, not like he has never done this before. Spike Lee's used cross-cutting a ton. Lots of filmmakers have. There's not, it's not like this is the first time it's ever happened. I guess there's, there's a meta-conversation going on here with the history of film. D.W. Griffith is in nearly every textbook on film. I've never actually come across one that he wasn't. And there's this sort of, he did all these great things. He was also a bit of a racist, which is lamentable. But all these great things. And I, I, I think what Spike Lee seems to be doing is dragging Griffith into the street. Not lynching him, but saying, okay, he contributed to film. And he's a fucking racist. And so I think it's just a really, really powerful, powerful scene. This isn't just about telling the story of Ron Stallworth. This is about this moment in America's history. Spike Lee isn't making a period film. He's making a movie that talks about the 1970s, but is ultimately commentary on what is happening today in America. And he's doing it using content that goes all the way back to the 1920s, which I think only highlights the monstrosity of all of this even, even more. Returning to the technical aspects, which is hard to do after I've given that incredibly subjective and impassioned response. Elements of narrative duration well you know things things people like oh it wasn't like it really was in real life well if they didn't you know film the entire thing and show you all the footage then it's nowhere near like it would be in real life the story duration is ostensibly two years here that the investigation was 1978 to 1979 okay um, plot duration of the film which says it takes place in 1972 like right off the bat this isn't true right we get Stallworth's first day, we get a bunch of weeks, we get the next week, we get the final day. These are all moments within the film. And films chop up stories to make narratives, to make plots. Let's just take the final day of the investigation. Plot duration, it'd be about 16 hours. Screen duration... 100 individual shots, or over 100 individual shots, yes, I counted them, ramping up to 25 minutes. 25 minutes. 16 hours turned into 25 minutes. If we needed no greater example of how film lies, it's this. And when I say film lies, it doesn't mean that I don't think it's valuable. I do, but it's valuable in the same way that poetry is, and the same way that written fiction is. And Ursula K. Le Guin said... The, the, the job of a fiction writer is to lie. And the job of a filmmaker is to lie at some level. The way in which narrative does repetitions and patterns of repetition is also one of these spaces of fictionality. The way that the camera will focus on the Union Jack in the background. Somebody, you know, that might seem real. It might have this sense of verisimilitude insofar as the movie's diegesis is concerned. But that has been orchestrated by the movie maker. They have very, very carefully in, in, ensured that the Union Jack is in the background or when, uh, you know, we're at one of the Klansmen's house, when we're at Felix's house, that we get the curtains that have the Klan symbols. We've got the robes hanging off to the side and the camera picks those up very, very carefully to ensure that we've got that repetition of image. 
And by its repetition, as your textbook says, the image calls attention to itself as a narrative element. But there's another thing that this film calls to itself as a narrative element, and it's not, I think, as obvious on the first go uh, as the Union Jack and the Klan symbolism would be, and it is the Afro. This movie has so many Afros, and it is... You know, we've got Kwame Ture saying, we've got nappy hair. We've got, like, Afros are something we should be proud of. We should not be trying to look like white people, look like our oppressor. At, at some point, the Afro becomes a element of narrative, a, a repetitious, familiar image that calls attention to itself as a narrative element, as a narrative element in a film that is ultimately about black pride. And you might say, well, maybe that's just their hair. Well, no, because I've seen Laura Harrier off screen and she doesn't have an afro like that. She doesn't have the afro that Patrice does in this film. So here we see production design supporting that, that, that the mise-en-scene of this film, production design of this film, the costuming of this film includes a, a wealth of, of Afros. And that might seem like a really odd thing to say, but no, I think that, that the, that the way in which black people are presented in this film includes a, Hey, this is what our hair does when you don't try to make it look like white people's hair might be, you know, might be a way of saying that. A few more elements of narrative, su suspense versus surprise. And you might go, what? Whoa, this is a non sequitur. Now you're talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the, the jump scare of Indiana Jones, uh, you know, walking down the hall and then the spikes come out and there's this dead guy on it. Um, yeah, but trust me, we're going to get, we're going to get somewhere. Um, suspense versus surprise. Surprise. Taken unaware, we, we have a shock. We have the jump scare, right? But your textbook says our emotional response is generally short-lived and can only happen in the same way once. I don't think that's entirely true. I think, yeah, well, in the same way. We're not going to get scared by the same thing twice, I guess is what it's saying. You can't get the jump scare the second time around unless you've completely forgotten that it's there. And we get a moment of surprise in this film that isn't a jump scare. Not all surprise needs to be a jump scare. We have the arrival of Felix at Ron Stallworth's house because he has his address. And the door opens and we might expect, like Felix does, to see Flip undercover flip and what we see instead is ron stallworth uh having a date with patrice and there is a moment of surprise right we don't know what's behind the door when felix walks up we might anticipate it but we don't know for sure and this is distinct from suspense this is distinct from suspense when felix's wife connie takes the bomb to Patrice's house to, you know, to put it in the mailbox to try and kill her and then finds, well, I can't get this in the mailbox, so I'll just shove it under her car. And, and that'll have to be good enough. We have suspense. And Alfred Hitchcock famously said that if you just set off a bomb, that's a surprise. But if you show someone putting a bomb under a table and then people come and sit and talk at the table, that's suspense which your textbook says is anxiety brought on by partial uncertainty or even knowing what is going to happen. We absolutely know there's a bomb. We know that Connie has it. We know what she plans to do. 
The means by which suspense is created is uncertain, and we want to warn and protect the empathetic characters. Suspense is generated by going, this is going to happen. And this is why I say, I'm not really a fan of, oh, spoiler alert. Oh, you ruined the whole movie by, for me by saying such and such. I recently, I'm reading a book and I, I flipped to a page completely by accident and found out that one of the characters dies. Has that ruined my reading of the book? No, in fact, it's actually made it a sort of suspense thing. I don't know how they die. And as the book progresses and I become closer and closer to this character, because they are an empathetic character, I feel like it's going to just gut me a bit when it finally happens. But this moment of the movie that is generated through suspense, this undoing of the clan by their own violence, is, as I said earlier, this moment of visual poetry. And Spike Lee is very good at this type of visual poetry, visual poetry, and he does it in Black Klansmen so well. George Clooney said, you cannot make a good film out of a bad screenplay. You can make a bad film out of a good screenplay. I've seen that happen a lot, but you can't do it the other way around. And I think that taking this a step further, I think Spike Lee knew that what he had in the story of Ron Stallworth was the potential for a great screenplay. I think that he and Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele, the, the guy who made Get Out, was the producer on this movie. I think they knew that they had a great property that they could work with. But I think when you start with a good story and that moves to a good screenplay, you, you have this potential for a great film, for a great film, something that goes beyond what Clooney is talking about here. And this movie shows its greatness in the end of the film, uh, in Act 3, as the story is resolved. Once Felix and his cronies have blown themselves up, we might expect the story to be resolved. And then we get this announcement by Chief Bridges, who has been somewhat antagonistic, or let's just say antagonistic, to Ron and his compatriots throughout the movie. The investigation is being shut down. That wasn't the resolution we wanted. We, we want to see some people go to, you know, we want to see people go to jail. We want to see the clan end. We want Ron Stallworth's story to end with the clan being finished, washed up. It's all over for them. But that's not what we get. What we get instead is that scene that I talked about earlier where Ron and Patrice float down the hall with their guns and then they look out the window in the distance they can see a burning cross and we get another moment of the fiction with the burning cross and all of these clan members around it and there's speculation as to whether or not one of the clan members is really flip and all i can think is is oh my god did you ever miss the point of this sequence of the film if that is where you hunkered down is whether or not flip has become a clan member at the end of the movie i kind of feel like you're missing the point I feel like you're missing the point because what the movie does is it doesn't stay with that single clan member. It moves to real footage of white supremacist marches, of neo-Nazi marches. It says, you know, we, we get this, I guess we could say a non-diegetic element, right? Of, of text, August, L, uh, August 11th, 2017, University of Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia, United States of America. This is no longer fiction. Now, everything that's led up to this point absolutely is. But we get this real-world resolution to this film that is no resolution at all. And this is the thing about the end of this film, is that Act 3 of this movie does not bring resolution 
to the story of Black Klansmen because I think Spike Lee is saying there's no resolution to racism in America. And that's powerful. The end of this movie caught me off guard. You want to talk about surprise? And I'd forgotten about it to some degree when I reviewed it even just yesterday in preparation for this, uh, for this recording. I remembered that there was this content at the end of the film, but I forgot that it ends with a memorial to this woman who died in this act of violence where someone drove into a Black Lives Matter rally. And it's as though Spike Lee is saying, this isn't over, this isn't done. And so while Act 3 can resolve the story of Ron Stallworth, insofar as this particular film, this fictionalized version of Ron Stallworth, in no way does Act 3 of this movie resolve what this film is ultimately about, which is definitely a Black Lives Matter, a Black Voices Matter moment, done very, very powerfully, very, very artfully by one of uh, America's, I think, greatest directors. So that's Black Klansman. Next week, shifting gears again, we're going to be looking at Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge as a way of talking about mise-en-scene and production design. I hope you'll join me then here on Triple Bladed Sword. <laughs>